What up, everybody? Welcome to the Zidane Ochar episode of 2, 5, and 10, episode 33. Benny, what up? I know everybody's wrapped up in the playoffs, but man, are my Rangers making moves, signing their top two prospects, uh, Krasov and Shaserskin, making that trade for Adam Fox. So while everybody's attention is focused on trying to win a Stanley Cup, which is what you should be doing, uh, my rebuilding Rangers are making moves. So I'm a little bit happy as a Ranger fan this week. Uh, good week of playoff hockey as well. Got game sevens coming up uh, for the second round. Some other moves around the league. So I'm pretty excited for this week. I got to ask you a question because it seems like every year you guys get these guys. Do the Rangers pay for you to be like a Russian translator with getting through these names or no? <laughs> uh, trust me, it's a lot of... Uh, looking at the potential future and just wishing and hoping that they come through and become what their scouting reports say they can be. And you watch a lot of video and you learn a lot of different last names coming over from Eastern Europe and Russia. So it's a skill you acquire when your team sucks for about half of your adult life. It's a foreign taste. That's an acquired taste. Um, yes. I feel bad <laughs> for uh, your play-by-play. Like, that's going to be an absolute... And Sveshnikov to Verisara. Like, dude, I would lose my mind. Yeah, you have Zibanejad. You're going to have uh, Kapokaiko. You're going to have Shosturskin, Georgiev, Shattenkirk, uh, Kravtsov, Buchnevich, all those guys. So, Filipino. Dude, they're going to be having you at the airport. You get off at JFK <laughs> or LaGuardia, they'll be like... You're in New York now. Speak Russian. <laughs> Dude, if the Rangers would like to hire me just to greet their incoming prospects from the rebuild at JFK and uh, make them feel welcome and drive them to the garden and they pay me an, a decent salary, I will do that. I will be perfectly content meeting these guys when they're 18 coming off the airplane at JFK. All right. I, I mean, I don't have any connections there, but I'll try like hell. <laughs> Where do you want to start with everything that's going on? You want to start with the pre-playoff stuff first, or what do you got? Uh, I was going to suggest we start uh, with just the news around the league, uh, some GM moves, but the Stars-Blues game today, I kind of want to get into it and get your opinion on the non-whistle after Ben Bishop took that shot off his shoulder slash collarbone, uh, went down, was... Obviously, out of the play, uh, he wasn't playing in net because of the pain he was in. No whistle. Uh, just want to get your thoughts on that because that was basically the turning point in Game 6. Yeah, it's one of those things where I don't want to say they cater to goalies because it seems like this year they haven't. Whereas in the past, that's kind of been like, oh, it looked like it clipped him, like call the play dead. Now mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, let's look around and see how he's doing. Like you said, he was definitely injured on it. Got a stinger. And maybe it's just because it was down the other end at this point. They don't really pay too much attention. But, I mean, you figure once as they change possession and they come back the other way, they would then call a dead to see that he's still in pain. You know, like one of those things where now that it's going back the other way that your possession's gone, they'll at least check. But definitely interesting. And the other thing, too, is do you think – with the game being in Dallas, it had anything to do with it where you don't want to feel like you're shafting St. Louis? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was such a bang-bang play. You know, he takes that shot from Parenko. He goes down. Steen immediately gathers the rebound, throws it on net, and Jaden Schwartz has a nice uh, mid-air deflection for the goal while Bishop is laying on his back, rolling around in pain because of the shot that he just stopped uh the rule book says when a player is injured so that he cannot continue play or go to his bench the play shall not be stopped until the injured player's team has secured possession of the puck so he talked about that during the broadcast a lot of people have said that it was the right call not blowing the whistle has been citing the first part of that rule book uh rule 8.1 but what's interesting to me is Kerry Frazier uh, the former referee, famous referee, said after the game that 
it's refs, refs discretion when it comes to the goaltender. And yeah, the goaltender can be coddled. It's kind of like the quarterback in football. Uh, but the referee was put in a position where, let's say, the shot that Steen took or Schwartz took hit a defenseless bishop as he's down on ice because of the previous injury and hits him in the head, the neck, or something like that, and hurts him even further, uh, people would be blasting the referee for not blowing the whistle. So I think, in my eyes, I was, in that moment, I was shocked that they didn't blow a play dead because Bishop was down. You see goalies all the time, uh, especially when they take a shot off the helmet or the goalie flips the helmet off to whistle the play immediately. So I was kind of surprised that you see the goalie take a shot up high. He's down on the ice, obviously in pain. Whistle's not blown, and then that turns a 1-1 game into a 2-1 game, and St. Louis kind of went 4-1 for the game seven. So maybe this is karma for the Brett Hull 1999 Stanley Cup goal against Buffalo, where his skate was decreased. Uh, maybe it's karma for that, but I was surprised that the play wasn't blown dead, although I can kind of see both sides of it. The only thing I hate is what you said where it's at the ref's discretion. I feel like everything that is within the NHL is at the ref's discretion. And even those one of those ones where if you shoot the puck in the net off of a rebound, but the referee was in the process or thought he was going to blow his whistle can say, nope, that's not a goal because I was going to blow it dead. So like to me, it's like, do we play to the whistle or not? Like, it, it's just so insane now as to how, who, what, where, when, why, and now the rules that have been popping up. Like, this rule, we'll get into it later, but the game five in Columbus where the puck goes off the netting and comes back into play in yep. the score. Like, it just seems like there's been too many oopses in the NHL playoffs this year. And the first-round matchup between San Jose and Vegas, I know those referees are no longer on the docket. Like, NHL took them off. They were like, you guys, there was way too many calls that were just bad in this series, so we're not going to let you continue, which I appreciate. I know it's a fast game, and a lot of things can happen. But at the same point, it's it, it's like you said, discretion, by the ref's discretion. So every time you get a new person, it's just kind of like, I don't know what discretion is anymore because Chris Rooney might say he's fine, but Wes McCauley may say he's completely injured. Yeah, I guess the counterpoint to that would be if a goalie wanted to use that to their his team's advantage if there is a long possession by the other team, they need a change, or there's a, they want to just stop the momentum of the other team where you take a shot up high, you shot high, like in the midsection, and you just uh, basically flop and act like you're in pain, and then the play is blown dead. So I can see why it's not just automatically goalies down and blow the whistle, but that was very clearly, even though after the game, the Stars coach Jim Montgomery said that uh, Bishop was eventually pulled after he gave up the fourth goal, but it wasn't because of injury. He was pulled for performance. His shoulder is fine. He took x-rays, came back negative, no broken collarbone or anything. So, I don't know. I can see why it's discretion. I was just surprised because even if it was just a stinger, that shot and pain that he was in took him so far out of the play that it was basically an empty net for Dallas, and they didn't have an extra man on the ice. So, I can see Dallas's point of contention, especially if they lose Game 7 in St. Louis. Well, my next question brings up to what we've talked about in the past two episodes. Is this the Ben Bishop playoff injury, like the one that costs him, like every year? <laughs> I was going to text that to you going, well, here we go. There's the, there's the Bishop injury. Uh, we've been waiting for it. The first, what is it, 10, 11 games of their playoff run so far in Dallas. Um, but apparently he's fine. Uh, he's going to come back for Game 7. Usually it's a lower body injury that knocks him out, so I'm surprised it got him up high this time. It's been the year of the underdogs, so the upper body injury bit him on this one. <laughs> uh, the other part of the series that I wanted to talk about is, you know, Dallas split up their top line, Radulov, uh, Ben, and Sagan in Game 4, and it worked out really well. Uh, they moved Zuccarello around, Dickinson around, uh, and it really worked out for him. But then he went right back to the same lineup for Game 5, and obviously they got the win, but they're, they didn't have as much uh, output offensively as they did in Game uh, 4. And then today they went, kept the same lineup, and he only got one goal. 
Uh, Sagan scored it, but they kind of lost the momentum there. I know their top line when they're together can be pretty dominant, like the McKinnon line in Colorado. But do you think Montgomery kind of made a mistake by not just riding the hot hands and seeing how far it takes them? Because you can always go back to that uh, Sagan line midway through a game. No, I'm with you. You can definitely go back to the to the other line midway through. I, I don't know. It, it's one of those things because I understand it the way the Bruins have had to shuffle lines because certain players in certain games haven't been there. And I, I just don't think you just don't want it to bite you in the ass on the other end. And I completely 100% get it. But, yeah, I mean, start with them. Start with them. If it doesn't look good, you can shake stuff up on the other end. But... This is a huge game for them. They could have closed it out today. Like, yeah, you, you stick with your big boys, and then when it doesn't work, then switch it up. The, but there is no reason to start different. Yeah, and the last thing for me is St. Louis has forced a game seven at home despite, you know, Braden Shen looks hurt. He looks off. He's not skating with as much power in his strides as he usually has, especially during the regular season. He has one goal and four points in 12 games. Alexander Steen has one goal and two points in 12 games. Ryan O'Reilly, two goals in 12 games. And I know Patrick Maroon scored that big goal in the first round against Winnipeg, but he only has three points in 12 games. These guys need to step up. I'm surprised they were able to force a Game 7 with the lack of production they've been getting from these guys. And when it comes to Game 7, they have last change. They're at home. You know, stars on paper aren't able to compete with a team like St. Louis. Both of us thought it was going to be a short series that favored the Blues. If they're going to look to win game seven and then make a run for the cup, they need these guys to start playing better. Jaden Schwartz has picked up his game since the regular season. These guys need to start picking it up as well. One person who I think is going to be crucial, who's definitely stepped his game up to the next level in the last couple of games, Alex Petrangelo. Uh, game five, oh, yeah. he has six shots on net. Today, first shot of the day, gets a goal. Um, that puck had eyes, man. He shoots it through the four checkers' legs, down through the backside of a screen. Like, good things happen when you put the puck on net. And I think as the captain of that team and as a leader, I think he's just trying to do that. If guys crash or screen the goalie, that puck's coming in some way, somehow. Get a rebound. Hopefully it hits twine and it goes in. We don't have to worry about that, but... I think he has gone to the next level. I think he's going to be a guy in Game 7 that he's going to strap it on, strap it on tight, and it's going to be do or die, and he's going to be their guy. I think this Game 7 has a potential for a multiple overtime game just because of both teams' defensive systems and lack of scoring in the series. Oh, like this this series has been like, you want to talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth? Like, Game to game, you don't know what you're getting. It's been insane. And then it's like you get down to the goalies, and did Bishop have a bad day, bad day today? Yeah, sure. But outside of that, everything's been pretty tight. And Bennington and him have kind of been a goaltending face-off in a sense. I mean, it hasn't been Bobrovsky and Rask, but it's been good every game. No, I completely agree. So game seven in this series is on Tuesday night in St. Louis. Uh, staying out west, Sharks won last night over Colorado in San Jose. They're up three games to two. Uh, they're going to Colorado and, uh, for game six tomorrow night. with a chance to wrap it up and go to the Western Conference Final. What are your thoughts on this series since we last uh, spoke? Uh, Pavelski was finally able to make an appearance, even if it was just in a suit to rile up the crowd last night. So he's getting closer to coming back potential for a game seven if it goes that far uh, what are your thoughts on the series and what are you looking for for game six I am just still surprised as to how good Colorado's depth has been in the sense of it wasn't there all year and now it's magically appeared and it's been good with that San Jose has turned it on man like anything around that net LeBanc Goudreau like mm-hmm. th- these guys are sniffing blood so I don't think it looks very good for Colorado. I know we both picked Colorado. Just There's something about that team this year and the way they've been playing. They, they've stolen games from San Jose in that building. I, I honestly think they're going to steal game six and it's going to go to game seven. 
The last change definitely helps Colorado in the series. They've been strong at home and in the playoffs so far. And I think that's why, because they're able to get the matchups that they want. They're able to utilize their depth. They struggle in San Jose, especially in game uh, five. The thing for me is, yes, Colorado surprised everybody with their round one win. They're making it to at least a game six against San Jose, a much more talented team. I still think it's going to go to a game seven in San Jose, which you could see the return of Pavelski and, you know, you have open up a can of worms if you're the avalanche in that aspect. But for me, the lack of a strong second line center is the series where it's really showing as a weakness for the avalanche, you know, San Jose is able to put out when healthy. They can put out Pavelski, Couture, Tomas Hurdle, and Joe Thorne. And I know Pavelski mostly plays the wing at this point. But if you have the McKinnon line going up against the Couture line, kind of neutralize each other. But Tomas Hurdle has been feasting on Colorado, and that's because he doesn't have an answer for him up the middle. And I know they've been making a series of it, but that's really showing, and I think if they lo- end up losing the series, that's going to be the biggest factor in my mind because it's not defense, it's not the third or fourth line, and it's definitely not goaltending. Can we discuss how big of an animal Logan Couture has been in these playoffs? Um, leads the league in points, 13, leads the league in goals. The other thing, too, I read a stat. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but I'm pretty sure it said in the last decade he has the most playoff points behind Ovechkin and Crosby. Like the the guy, he's, he's just beast, man. He just turns it on. He's been phenomenal, and he definitely has the hockey smile. If you saw his interview the last couple of weeks with the one of his front teeth missing, I feel like this time of the year, if if you got a tooth out, even if it's like a temp, you just pull it out for the interviews. You know, you get a couple extra points on the other end. And I think I know he was a high pick, but that's just another testament to the San Jose developmental system where. A lot of their depth contributors that have helped them in the playoffs have been undrafted free agents or college free agents. You look at guys like Tommy Wingles, Dave Jardins, Justin Braun, uh, Matt Irwin, those guys, Coach Short. You know, they just kind of churn out these middle six, bottom six, bottom pair cheap players that help them to bring in guys and sign guys like Carlson, Kane, Thorne, Pavelski, Coach Short. So, again... Much more talented than the other guy tested, but just another testament to San Jose being able to consistently turn up uh, young cheap talent last year and a year out. I wish I had a tracker of how many miles he flew in the 09-2010 season. In Worcester. <laughs> well, well, no, yeah, in Worcester to San Jose. So I was working in Lowell. He was in Worcester that year. But, I mean, oh, they, they would call him up for a game or two and then send him back. He, the, he'd get back, uh, the phone would ring the next day, he's back out on the road like, I, I felt so bad for the kid flying back and forth, but when you get some of the show dough, and, uh, you know, it, it makes it all a little bit easier. And the and the other thing, too, is the, the kid's a stud. The, there's no question. They yeah. knew that back then. They were bringing him up for the chances to play and everything else. So, like you said, credit to their de- developmental system. More importantly, I mean, when you actually pick a kid and you hit on him, you're like, Yes. Like, yeah. yes. Like, <laughs> and I want to give a shout out to him because even when he was a high draft pick, he only played maybe a handful of games in Worcester before he made it to the show full time. Uh, when we were both interning and then working for the Worcester Sharks, he was one of my last interviews and he was gracious enough to, at the airport with the big club, getting ready to go on a flight for a Western, uh, Western road trip. Took my call. We did an interview while he sat at the airport. Um, so always appreciated that, especially now that I see how far he's developed and how uh, strong of a player he's become. You know, that always that always stayed with me. You didn't wake him up from a pregame nap, did you? <laughs> uh, no, this time I was able to work out schedules. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll get into that story another time. <laughs> um, going out east, we'll save the Bruins for last as always. Uh, Carolina returned the favor that the Islanders did to Pittsburgh, swept the Islanders out of the playoffs. Uh, 
what are your thoughts? You know, for me, what a testament to the Carolina Hurricanes. Their home crowd is back, and, you know, you can say they're fair weather or whatever, but the Hurricanes organization didn't really give them much of a reason to cheer and come out to games for the last decade, and now they do. They have a great owner uh, that's putting money back into the team. But they sweep the Islanders. Uh, I know you picked the Islanders to win a series, I think, in six games. I know Islander fans are saying, if only we played at NASA Coliseum, we might have won this series. But what are your thoughts, and how far do you think this Hurricanes team can go? It's a little scary because it seems like everything's finally starting to come together for them. Uh, you have Teravine and you have Stahl, you have Aho, you got Mr. Game 7 himself, Justin Williams. Like, all these guys are contributing every night. It's not like any of these guys, like, you're like, oh, this guy's sleeping. Oh, this guy's taking the night out. Like, they're legitimately showing up to play every night, which is phenomenal. Um, you want to talk about points and goals? Teravine and six goals, three assists, nine points. Uh, let's see, your boy Warren Fogle. Uh, 11 <laughs> points. No, I'm sorry. Nine points, five goals, four assists. It, it just goes down the list here. It, it's Jordan Stahl, four goals, five assists. Sebastian Ajo, same thing, four goals, five assists. Like, where we were talking about how Colorado was relying on their heavy hitters, I guess you can say Carolina's doing the same, but, I mean, they're getting it from everyone. Like, it's coming from every line. It's, it's just weird to see because when this owner took over in the summer – we heard everything. This guy's cheap. Then they started doing the dance to, you know, keep the fans happy or entertained. And you're like, wow, it's just an absolute crapshoot down there. And now you're like, these guys are in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, I just yeah. don't know what to expect next from this team. I'm just, I'm baffled. And McElhaney and Mrazek, you know, they split the air playing. So when Mrazek gets hurt, McElhaney jumps right in. He wasn't a backup. I think it was just Mrazek was playing better heading down the street heading down the stretch and they went with him they read they rode the hot hand but he walks in and he's unfazed like I, I just can't believe it and I know you can say I'm a homer or this that the other thing are the Bruins or Columbus a better team than Carolina on paper absolutely but the way these guys are playing I don't know man I, I think there's a chance a bunch of jerks <laughs> there's and don't forget, his whole ownership tenure started off by firing legend Ron Francis from the GM position and then not really hiring a replacement, uh, just keeping Don Wadahan in, in the role. Uh, so it started off kind of uneven, and it turns out it worked out well. You know, they had the system in place already. Brendan Moore was a suspicious hire. Everybody was like, well, how is this going to work out? He's got the team going. It's a very close knit group in Carolina. Uh, to me, it's always going to come down to goaltending. Uh, Morozik, he's still day-to-day. I don't know how severe that injury is. It kind of looked like he was either a groin or a hammy, so you never know how long those are going to keep a guy out, especially a goaltender. I don't know how much faith I have in McElhaney to go in a seven-game series against either Columbus or Boston. Um, the other injury bug is Trevor Van Reemslake is out for the rest of the playoffs. He had shoulder surgery, so that kind of hurts their defensive depth. But on a flip side to your point where the point production, you know, you have Slavin and Pesci putting up points, mostly assists, but still, those are guys that, you know, you bank on guys like Hamilton and Falk to put up offensive numbers. And once you start having your two-way or defensive guys shipping, offensively, it gets, gets the bench going. Um, so for me, it's always going to be if goaltending holds up, they have a chance because the system is just built around puck possession. Uh, the other thing about the series for me is in the handshake line, do you see Dougie Hamilton do the head pat for Brock Nelson as payback for after Nelson scored the goal uh, earlier in the series? Dude, I saw it, and the one thing I was thinking as I watched it is I don't think, well, maybe Phil Kessel. Outside of Phil Kessel, I think Dougie Hamilton takes the most shit in the league. Like, just yeah. people are always all over him. And, I mean, at times it's well-deserved. I'm not going to say it's not. But for him to return the favor like that, to me, that was, like, all-time. Because it was like, wow, Dougie Hamilton. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, Because even when it happened, like, Brock Nelson 
pats McElhaney on the head. Then he comes around the other way around that, and he bumps into Hamilton, too. In typical Dougie Hamilton, no response, no anything. <laughs> and then for him to do it there, I was like, that's hysterical. Like, that's awesome. Uh, coming out of this series, though, this is going to be a very key summer for the Islanders organization. Uh, they lost to Bars last summer. Uh, they actually ended up making it further in the playoffs than the Maple Leafs did. But for free agency, Brock Nelson, their captain, Anders Lee, Jordan Eberle, their number one goalie, Robin Leonard, all free agents. Matt Barzell, he has one year left on his entry-level deal. You're going to have to sign him long-term, hopefully, if you're the Islanders. Uh, who knows what's going to happen there. If Leonard stays, then you only have Grice in goal. There's not really much on a free agent market in terms of goaltending. Uh, you're going to have most of your defense coming back, which is a good start because they're young and talented. Didn't make a run for Panarin. Uh, that's been rumored, uh, even though Lamorello doesn't really give out huge free agent contracts. So the Islanders, they had a surprise run this year. They had a good run of it. Very good coaching by Barry Trotz again. Uh, but their season comes to an end, and now this summer there's a lot of question marks on what's this, what is this team going to look like when they enter training camp in September. You kept going. I, I I almost jumped in, but I was gonna say, yeah, Lou Lamorello doesn't hand out big contracts and coming free agents, unless they're Ilya Kovalchuk, and then you circumvent the cap and then you leave. So uh, maybe it's just a Russian thing. Yeah. Maybe he just has a thing for the Russians. I don't know. That was his uh, fu to league because he thought he was done. <laughs> yeah, and now he's in LA, loving life. Clearly, um, I'm with you. It, it's gonna be interesting. I know Barry Trotz is very highly touted around the league. Like, the guys really like him, the guys who play for him. He really stresses that family aspect in the locker room, and the guys really hold on and take off on it. With that, I think the guys would be definitely willing to go play for Barry Trotz. But I still think this whole stadium thing, arena, looms over people's heads. Like, it's just... Yep. I think that's the biggest thing in... We can talk about how if they played this series in the Coliseum, would it have been different? I think they may have won a, won a home game. I don't think they would have won both. But with that, I mean, how can you sign long-term there not knowing exactly what's going to happen? I, I wouldn't want to put my family in that situation. Yeah, because you're not... Playing in Brooklyn past another year, maybe two. You can't play at the Coliseum, according to NHL. So you're banking on this arena being built in Belmont, and that's running into its own problems, which we've talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. So you don't know if you're going to be playing in New York. You don't know if you're going to be relocating. You don't know what the hell is going to be happening, which is amazing for a professional sports franchise. It's horrifying. Like, this is every professional sports team's nightmare. And they live it every year because it seems like every year it gets worse on the stadium end. On, like, it's just crazy. I And I just don't know how Bettman, who's in New York, cannot make this better. Like, legitimately, Brooklyn to the NHL office. How far? Half hour ride with traffic? Oh, you don't want to drive it. You want to take the subway. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. With the, Well, I don't think Bettman would take the subway. I think he'd be, if someone well, did his, actually his recognize Uber Black. him. Yeah, maybe just an Uber black car, whatever. But um, no, man, I just don't know for someone who's that close to the situation how there's not a better handle on it. That's the craziest part to me. Because Florida has that long-term lease that they're basically locked into and they'll have to pay crazy money to get out of. The Islanders don't even have one. Like, they're courteous guests. Yeah. The thing is, they put all their work into that Belmont situation, and now that there's hiccups, New York government, whether state or local, is notoriously slow. So I think it's just in a holding pattern right now. And if I'm Bettman or if I'm the Islanders' ownership, you don't want to leave. You don't want that stigma of being a franchise that had to relocate, especially a franchise that won Stanley Cups. But you have to put a deadline on this. You can't keep your franchise in hostage year after year after year when it comes to player development, player uh, acquisitions. You know, I'm surprised a guy like Barry Trotz even went there, to be honest. Um, 
so I would put a deadline on this. Like we need approval. We need shovels in the ground by spring of 2020. Otherwise we're going to start looking for better deals elsewhere. Yeah. And I'm with you too, because it seems like every year we have this conversation with them every year. And this is where we are still waiting to break ground in Belmont park. And one last thing about the Islanders, because I've, I've basically hit my quota of giving a shit about their future. Um, how is Lane Lambert, you know, Barry Trotz's right-hand man for years now, how is he not mentioned more often when it comes to head coaching vacancies? Uh, I know there are still a few openings now, maybe a few more once the playoffs are over. This is a guy that, he knows the in and outs of Barry Trotz, his system, the way his brain works. He's been successful in Nashville, he's been successful in Washington, successful in New York now. I'm surprised a guy like this isn't getting more promotion, I would say, when it comes to head coaching vacancies. It's interesting you say that because another person uh, who's been with Trotz for a long time, organization, organization, Mitch Korn, the goalie coach. So through that, I don't know if people are just embedded and they're like, you know, I love my job. I like being because if you want to look at it, it could be like a Roy and Cunny situation where you're with somebody for so long like you don't even have to speak as to what's wrong or what to do or what not to do. So I think on that end, being comfortable in more than anything, extremely compatible, like online dating, I guess, you know, like you find your, like you stick. And I guess that's the way it is. I'm with you though. I mean, for someone who's been through the ringer with trots, why is there not more looks at him? And maybe it's because he hasn't had that head coaching experience. Maybe. Um, but yeah, I just think that's a name that should be mentioned more. Maybe this summer is his year. Uh, but switching gears, going to the big the big boy series in the Eastern Conference, the Bruins and the Blue Jackets, take it away. I was scared last night watching that third period. Um, the NHL, when they called, was it the second goal, the one the Tukarat, the the leg pad goal. I don't know if it was the first or second mm-hmm. goal for Columbus, but um, I think it was the second. Yeah. So I'm watching it, and the only thing I can think of, because we speak about refs and officiating and NHL and the rule book and the way things are stated, and as I'm watching this, I'm thinking there is no concrete evidence that the puck crossed the line. I'm watching it knowing that the puck crossed the line because where it hits him on the leg pad and where his leg pad goes, but the side view, the overhead, the in the net cam, you couldn't really see it. And then after the NHL overturns it, now there's this different angle that comes in that it kind of looks like, you know, Rass leg pad there, the puck kind of comes in on the post and it disappears. Yeah, that's the one I saw. Yeah, like that was the one that they played last. I had no question that puck went in the net, but off of the way their descriptions are of you can't overturn unless there's conclusive evidence, like unless they were just waiting to show us that angle on TV, you you couldn't tell from what they were showing you. So I'm like, there's no way they can overturn this goal. And then you see it and you're like, fuck, like here it is. Here, here's where the momentum starts swinging. And, you know, we end up getting the two quick ones we're up to. And then Columbus gets two quick ones after that, and then we're down one. Like, yep. that third period was crazy yesterday. I'm on the couch freaking out. Like, first I'm all <laughs> fired up, and then I'm holding the Big Red's hand, like, white-knuckled, like I'm driving a car 100 miles an hour. Like, I was, like, I didn't know how to take it. It was so back and forth, so up and down. Uh, happy we got a win out of it, but it, it was scary. Uh, Tuka Rask and Bobrovsky, man. That Bobrovsky, the first goal by Krejci, I think it just caught him off guard the way Krejci fanned on it more than anything. Because if it was a normal yeah. shot, he would have fronted that and been fine. But then you see him, like, he was going to, he picked that leg pad up to kind of kick out to come out further because it was a dud. And as he lifts his leg pad up, this thing kind of trickles through and you, you could tell he was angry. Good to see David Pasternak actually contributing. I know everyone's been on him for 
being hurt, the thumb, the you mental mojo. Heard, uh, your criticism. I know we heard my criticism. I, I called him and I told him in check what I was feeling. I don't know check, but I mean, if I did, I would <laughs> call him. But uh, this series has been wild. I mean, the goaltending has been lights out both ways. Uh, game six in Columbus is going to be a tough game. I'm hoping that we can close it out there. I, I don't want to come back. We can get into the Tortorella comments of we're coming back for a game seven. And absolutely Tortorella has to say that. What are you going to tell you guys or tell the media? Yeah, no, we're done. No, and, and stupid Boston fans, and I hate to say it because sometimes they are, like, oh, my God, is acting like a baby. Can you believe he said that after the game? Like, yeah, I can. Like, what would you tell your team? Like, all right, boys, let's pack yeah, it up. Yeah, I don't well, think that's being a baby. Like, I don't either. Like, it's just sometimes the Boston fans, they're a little, they're just stupid. And I don't want to say naive. I think they're just stupid. But um, I, the funny part of that for me was the next day they asked them, uh, so were you guaranteeing, like kind of giving him the opportunity to step back from saying, I guarantee you will be here for game seven. And he'll, he called the reporter and he's like, what the fuck do you think? No, we're going to be there for game seven. Write that in your stupid newspaper. <laughs> and, and, and I don't blame Torts. Like, I know sometimes he gets a bad rap for certain things. But one thing that shouldn't be a bad rap is defending your guys. Like, you want to back your guys to the end as a coach? And if I call Brandon Dubinsky right now and say, hey, who's the best coach you played for? And he says, John Tortorella, and I'm friends with Dubinsky. I would probably consider going to Columbus in the offseason and giving Torts a chance. You know, so it's like, yeah, it, it's just one of those things. I know they had that uh, that clip of him firing up the guys in Tampa Bay after that first horrendous first period they have, and then the boys rattle, you know, rallying and then rattling off goals and sweeping Tampa Bay. Is that going to work here? I don't know. I don't know if it'll be released, whatever he says in the locker room. But with that, it's going to be hostile in there. It's going to be a very hostile environment. The Bruins need to come and quiet that crowd, quiet that cannon, the whole nine. And I pray to God next time we're talking about our next show for the conference final previews, it's because the Bruins ended it in the sixth game. And I do not want to go there, lose a game, and then have all the momentum in their hands coming back for game seven. I don't. I don't want to do it. I, I would rather be down 3-2 going there and win game six and win game seven than go in there and lose in game six. I was telling the First Lady how, you know, I'm as an outsider for this playoff season, I was like, man, do I, you know, in a way, obviously I, I miss the deep playoff runs. Like, I would obviously want the Rangers to be making a run for the Cup and winning it. But after, I think, like a five, six-year run where we went to the conference final a few times, the Stanley Cup final, we kept having to come back down three games to one against Washington and Pittsburgh in back-to-back years. Seeing that third period of game five, I looked at her, I was like, man, I am so happy I, this isn't my team right now. I'd be losing my shit. <laughs> oh, dude, I was going crazy. And then it's like, of course, 10-minute mark in the third as they're cutting back in from commercial. Wow, halfway there. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, of course, right after that they score. And it's just like you just point your head down at the floor and Cam's in the other room so I can't curse too bad. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, scrolling. <laughs> and, oh, it's just like. Like, of course, it's like, th- did we did we start the song too early? Like, it works in Gillette when we sing it. You know, when we sing Josie, we know the game's over in Foxborough. But clearly, Columbus does not have a a give up button. You know, their give a damn's busted no. that they're going to play all 60 minutes no matter what. And that's a great thing to have as a team. Or maybe it's the coaching staff. Well, just the mentality in general. With that, yeah, though, if, I'm Tortore- if I'm Tortorella, I just say, guys, we beat Tampa Bay. Nut up and get the fuck out there and win this thing. Do you think he comes in? We'll post the YouTube clip after. And he, uh, remember when he was with the Rangers? And I think it was leading up to the Winter Classic. And you guys were playing in St. Louis. And you guys had that flat first period. And he comes up. He's like, 
if you don't got it strapped on, you're not playing. Oh yeah. Playing. Like <laughs> I, I think that's like perfect in this scenario. Like you go into game six, like hey, if you don't bring it, you're not playing. Like that's it, hook, line, and sinker. I do have one question for you because it seems so random for me. He opted last night to go with seven D, and then oh yeah, like I just I don't know why he, does he did, he did that. that a lot in New York too. Yeah, it, it seems strange to me, um, especially because this this was this guy's first NHL game. He came over from the KHL, and now he's throwing him in there. I don't think he did bad in the first couple of minutes. He had a couple of hits, a couple of touches on the pucks, and then he went unnoticed. But going into this game six, do you think he does seven D again, or do you think he rounds out? the 12 forwards like i'm just curious with your experience with torts as to what you what you think's coming i would think he's going to go back to 60 12 forwards um when he used to do it in new york so my thing is he either was dealing with an injury up front or he the guy that he benched just wasn't happy with their play or compete level and he'd rather have – he thinks that that seventh defenseman that he can insert would bring more to the game and a game plan than the re, the replacement forward. So that's kind of how he views it. Um, if it's not an injury, he usually goes back to that guy, especially in an elimination game because that guy's going to be pissed off and he's going to – you know, the old mentality of uh, I'm not going to lose my spot again, especially on his playoff team. I've been here all year. I'm not going to want to lose my spot now. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he goes back to 6D for game six. The thing with Torts is, you know, towards the end of his tenure with the Rangers, they tuned him out. There was like that little bit of a mutiny after you guys knocked us out in the second round and see other fire Torts. But when he has his team buying in and everybody's lining up behind him, this isn't a team that you're going to go into their home arena and you're going to win this game 3 nothing, 4-1 in an elimination game. Uh, you guys, if you win game six in Columbus, you guys are going to come out of there looking some, uh, some bruises and some cuts uh, from winning the series on the road. Uh, the other thing that I want to touch on, you touched on Bobrovsky, unreal goaltending. You know, it's like he turned a switch once the playoffs started because the regular season was hit or miss, inconsistent. Uh, maybe it was all the trade rumors that was contributing towards that. But as soon as the playoffs started, that glove C, I know the rebound because he couldn't corral the rebound and it led to a goal. That glove save he made, I think, who was that on? Uh, was that on DeBrusque or Krejci? Marshand. Marshand, unbelievable glove save. He's been playing out of his mind. Tuga has been his steady self uh, just because of the size that he has in that. So the two aspects for me that might help Columbus in a game six at home Chara is getting exploited a little bit. I know he's 42. You can't expect this guy to be able to keep up playing 20 minutes a night in the playoffs against a team like Columbus. But he's getting exploited by the speed a little bit. He, you know, Ryan Dezinkle knocked him on his ass along uh, the benches in Game 5. I would hate to have seen him try and keep up with Tampa Bay in the second round if Tampa Bay advanced. I don't think he would be able to. It would be kind of... Not, I'm not going to say embarrassing. It would be tough to watch. Um, so that's one aspect where if I'm the Blue Jackets, you have the last change. I'm putting guys like Atkinson, Anderson, uh, Borkstan, all those guys on Chara and riding his ass all game long and seeing if he can get the puck in on a four-check ahead of him. The other thing is, yes, they're facing elimination, but they've gotten almost nothing in this entire series from Anderson. He has one goal and three points in nine games. Uh, Ryan Dezingle has one goal in eight games, and that came in a Tampa Bay series. Dubinsky hasn't really contributed much, and I'm not saying he's a offensive powerhouse in any sense of the word. But those are three key guys that are built for the playoffs, especially Dubinsky and Anderson with their size, and they've gotten nothing. So it's going to, like you said, it's going to be a tough win for Boston in the game six in Columbus. Uh, Bobrovsky has played well. Uh, Columbus is still talented, but I think Torts. With his coaching style, with the buy-in he has on his team right now, and with the last change, it's going to be real tough to come out with that W. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has a Game 7 in Boston, which is unfortunate for you in a way because you're going to be having near heart attacks for two and a half hours. I just hope when we have to do the conference finals thing, 
when we reference Columbus, it is strictly about their offseason moves. Like I said, <laughs> I I do not want to come back here for Game 7. Do not. Just, yeah. Before we, before we move on to some of the league news, I just I have a question that I need a simple yes or no from you. Do you want the bread toasted? Was, yes. <laughs> the bread Marchand punch. Dirty or not? Do you want my in-depth or do you just... <laughs> no, because this is what it is. Was it a cheap thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. When that punch happened and I was waiting for whoever was tied up with Bergeron to go over and fight Marchand, didn't happen. And Marchand kind of flied it a little bit too. You like, If you're going to do it, at least have the coconuts to back it up, like Mike Rupp said. And I'm 100% yeah. on board with that. Do I think it needed to be a suspension? No. A penalty? Yeah, absolutely. But um, he didn't wind up and punch him. It was just kind of a, hey, how how do you do in the back of the head? Is it cheap? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, like I wrote another thing, see you game five. Like John Shannon up north going crazy over it, and the Bruins will deal with this. And internally, is he suspended? Is it? No, no, he's not. The, The Bruins don't care. Because I thought Marshan was going to come out and have a game the next game. Because obviously he's upset, he's rattled, he's not producing like he has in the past. And I think he's just at that point. Is this going to happen in a playoff series? Absolutely. Should Columbus have responded better? Absolutely. So it, it's just one of those things of it happened. And the best part is his response, yeah, it's playoff hockey. And it reminded me of the 2011 Stanley Cup Final Game 6 when he teed off on one of the Sedin sisters. And at the end, after the game, they asked him why he did it, and his response was, because I felt like it. So (laughs) there you go. For me, yeah, for me, I'm not saying it was a suspensionable thing. I just think, like, what's what's the point, man? Like, at a certain point, if you're on his teammate, like, I feel bad for a guy like Bergeron. Like, if I'm on a bench next to him, I was just gonna like, what the fuck was the point of that, man? Like, especially to the back of the head. Like, I get it's playoff hockey. You're going to be pushing a line a little bit, especially if the referees are going to be swallowing their whistles. I wouldn't have cared so much if it was, like, a scrum in a corner and it was, like, they were kind of squared up or pushing and shoving and it gave him, like, that same type of jab to the front of his face or something. Like, I get that. But it just came off as, like, what the fuck, man? To the back of the guy's head, especially when the guy has obviously has his back turned to you, is not ex- expecting a punch to the head. It doesn't take much for concussions. So, and I know that from experience. So that's kind of what made me lean that way. The other thing is, I feel like if it was Sean Corrali that did that, nobody would have even tweeted about it for the most part outside of like hardcore hockey Twitter. It's just because Marshan has like twelve fines and like seven suspensions to his name. If it was a guy like Corrali, like I said, nothing would have been really made of it. But I just, it's not dirty, but it's just like, what? Come on, man. Like, really? That was my reaction to it. It's kind of like the Sean Avery with the stick tap to the back of Tom's head. I do have a confession. I love that Corrali leap. I, I really do. Oh, oh, yeah, that was good. <laughs> uh, should we go to the other stuff around the league, non-playoff related? Yeah, we can do some quick hits. Uh, I don't think it's going to be... Too long of a segment here, but some GM news first uh, before we get to my Rangers. Kelly uh, McCrimmon in Vegas. He was rumored to be in a running for the Edmonton Oilers GM position and also the expansion Seattle team for the GM role, which they probably were looking at him just because of his experience with the expansion draft at the Golden Knights. Uh, Vegas obviously did not want to lose them, so they promoted him to uh, general manager in Vegas, and uh, George McPhee was promoted to director of hockey operations, so they kept the team together. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I know you think it's kind of weird, but I can see why they wanted to keep the, the, the management team together for a successful franchise to start the last, first two years of their existence. No, I get why they give him the job to keep him around and keep him happy. The only thing I don't get is, so McPhee now gets promoted to a job that nobody had before, and the director of hockey operations, president of hockey operations, whatever it is. And technically, it's like, I feel like McPhee's still the GM here. I feel like he's still pulling all the strings and everything else, because 
just like before. I'm sure McCrimmon was in on all the things that were happening. And now it'll be the other way with McPhee being there in those meetings. I just feel like McPhee still has so much pull that to me, it doesn't matter. And one thing that just popped in my head would be this. You think that now he's not a GM? Do you think hypothetically, just throwing shit out there, that when the Seattle GM job comes around, he maybe he puts his mark on that expansion team too? That would be interesting. Um, yeah, I guess it boils down to it. And I don't think we're going to find this out anytime soon, if at all, but how the decision-making process is now structured in Vegas. And if Kelly McCrimmon has the final say on everything, yeah, Holland has the experience. That basically, if McCrimmon has final say, that basically turns uh, McPhee into an advisor, like yeah, a basically. sage advisor. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you know, McPhee doesn't want to be doing that for the rest of his career. It's not like an old guy like Sather is. So he might actually be interested in something like that and adding to his resume of saying, I kickstarted two new franchises and both of them came to the league and started off extremely well, which is would be unheard of in the league history as far as GMs go. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like, for out, just for perspective, I know it's a different sport, but out here, Billy Bean is, no, is the face of the Oakland Athletics. Uh, he was a GM for a long time, Moneyball, all that. He's not the GM. He hasn't been a GM for at least five or six years, I think, at this point. But nobody knows the name of the GM for the Athletics, David Frost. So, yeah, you can have the title like David Frost has for the Athletics out here, but everybody still thinks that things run through a Billy Bean. And if you're a guy like Kremen who had options to be hired in Edmonton or Seattle, I... I guarantee you he has something in sign in writing or an agreement saying, I'm not just some face of the franchise who handles all of the admin work. I am the decision making here maker here. And if that's the case, like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if McPhee is like, Hey, I'll stick around for another year or two, but I'll look for another opportunity if a good one comes up. Well, speaking of the other transaction that happened could be under the same thing. Stevie Y goes into Detroit as the general manager. Ken Holland promoted to the president of hockey operations. Well, Ken Holland is going to be your new GM of the Edmonton Oilers. So what do you think about that? And that lasted, that new senior role, vice president of whatever, for Holland lasted all of, what, a week and a half? Yeah, um, just about. <laughs> I know the Ilch family, they said we would love to have Holland retire with the Red Wings organization. He's been there for decades. Uh, but you knew he was going to leave. He's very well respected around the National Hockey League. He has experience with multiple Stanley Cup championships, all that. The Oilers are giving him $25 million over five years, and the two things that come with this for, for me, from the Edmonton Oilers' point of view, they finally are going to be able to break up the old boys' club and culture in Edmonton. No more... Kevin Lowe's or Gretzky's or Messier's or whoever coming in and McTavish's from the dynasty years and bringing in their boys. This is a guy who's going to be able to walk into the owner's office and say, this is how things have to be. And he's going to have the ability to do that because of his reputation and stature around the league. And that's exactly what the Oilers needed. I'm surprised that they went with Holland, uh, to be honest, because they've been so used to this culture for years and years now. But this is a great hire for the Oilers as an organization. Um, the flip side of it for Holland personally, this is a huge risk to his reputation just because the Oilers have been a mess for years, it's even with all the high draft picks, even with a guy like McDavid. He could have had easily just collected a paycheck and worked with CBY and continue with the rebuild, which is starting to look good in Detroit, and retired. Now... If he goes to Edmonton and this doesn't work, kind of takes a hit there. So a lot of pressure with this hire, but I think it's a good one for the Oilers and a risky one for Holland. I wish I had a rebuttal. That's that's like spot on. Yeah. What, Damn. What, all right. What, I'm gonna I'm gonna accept, I'm gonna isolate that one clip and then just play it for the first lady whenever she disagrees. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> uh, um, but other than that, the other news around the league, the Rangers hit it.
Can we discuss this though? <laughs> uh, like I just have to like get it off my chest. Adam Fox, point and a half a game player at Harvard, the defenseman drafted by Calgary, sent to Carolina in the deal with Dougie Hamilton. The the kid was a huge name to begin with. It, it came out, and I'm gonna say it. I mean, you, you guys have a stud on your hands that you just picked up, but like, he reminds me of kind of like the Eric Lindros big fucking baby syndrome. Like, I'm only gonna play for oh. New York. I'm only gonna play for New York, and then it finally happened because he was intending on playing his senior year at Harvard because he didn't want to sign with Carolina, and now yeah. that he got traded to New York, yep. I'm I'm signing pro. Uh, so yep. to me it just seemed like I understand the essence and the aroma of playing for your hometown team and everything else and maybe he has something on a chip on his shoulder cuz looking at someone like Kevin Shattenkirk like the homecoming wasn't all that grand. So now maybe he just wants to make it look better whatever it may be. But for me it's like do you know the honor it is to get drafted by an NHL team? And then it's like, well, if you were still in Calgary, were you still going to play this card, or is it just you hate Carolina? So now we'll never know as to what it is, who, what, where, when, why. You guys give up nothing for him. A, a normal second and then a conditional third next year would it'll probably be a second because the condition on it is if he plays 30 NHL games or more, which, I mean – barring any injuries i see him playing the whole season with you guys yeah he's gonna make the team out of camp yeah so i'm just like that's just my only thing with them i mean hats off to you guys you guys got a stud on your hands but that's just my only thing and say he comes out and he starts playing a little weak are are you gonna contribute this now to well i'm at home and people are calling me for tickets what do you want me to do uh I don't even want to get into the negative at this point <laughs> when it comes to Fox, just because, you know, for years when the Rangers were going on a Stanley Cup push, they kept trading away first-round picks um, for guys like St. Louis and Keith Yandel, but then they would end up signing college free agents like Jimmy VC, Kevin Hayes, which are the equivalent of drafting uh, first-round talent that is that are already NHL ready. Um, so the Rangers have a lot of experience with this. To be honest, there were rumors in Calgary that he didn't want to sign to Calgary, which is why they were willing to include him in a deal with Carolina because they're like, listen, let's just cash in on his value now and let Carolina worry about it. Carolina knew about that when he traded for him. They were just hoping that they would be able to change his mind. So, I mean, I respect their effort in trying to take a swing and a miss for a talent like Adam Fox. But you can't really blame Fox for being kind of upfront about him saying, listen, I want to play in New York. I want to play in New York. And Carolina trades for him and then goes, well, shit, he doesn't want to play for us. Yeah, no shit. He's been pretty open about it, at least behind the scenes to the organizations he's been a part of. Uh, I don't want to get into the whole giant baby thing just because it's not like he was holding out like an Eli Manning or a Lindros like you use as an example of the draft. This is a guy who's kind of earned a right where his contract, his rights were going to be up. He didn't abuse the CBA. He was pretty upfront about it. And I would be saying this if he was leaving the Rangers. So I always kind of lean on a side of players when it comes to uh, taking their ownership in their career just because of how restrictive free agency and the cap can be for players over the course of their career. So I kind of lean in that direction. But like you touched on, he led the entire NCAA in points per game, and that's not just among defensemen, that's among everybody in the nation. Uh, he was a finalist for the Hobie Baker Award this year, 116 career points in 97 career games for Harvard. He grew up on Long Island, which is why he's a Rangers fan, and the only reason why he kept saying he would only pay, play for the Rangers um, like you touched on, he was considered the long-term piece of that Dougie Hamilton trade in, in Carolina, which obviously didn't work out. Still, I still think it's a solid trade for the Hurricanes uh, and the Flames. He's not a franchise guy. He's not going to be a Victor Hedman or a Ryan McDonough. He's not a two-way, number one, 20, 25-minute-a-night guy. 
Uh, just because he's on a smaller side, his defensive game is not atrocious, but it's not as uh, unparalleled as his offensive game. He has great hockey IQ and creativity. He's instantly a power play QB at, at worst for the Rangers starting next season. Um, he should make the team out of camp, like I said, which leads to an interesting decision for the Rangers because they already have Shattenkirk, a right-handed shot offensive defenseman, Tony D'Angelo, a right-handed shot offensive defenseman, and Neil Pionk, a right-handed shot offensive defenseman. Um, so the easy decision there is to get rid of Pionk and go with Fox, but we'll see what happens for Shattenkirk this summer. For me, I think this is a home run. Like you said, just giving up basically two second-round picks. Who gives a shit? We have three first-rounders this year, potentially. We had two last year, so it's not really going to hurt the Rangers overall. I think a good comp here, and you can give me your thoughts on my player comp here. I think he's kind of a smaller Keith Yandel. Um... Like offensively, because he's more of a playmaker than like a big shot. Well, yeah, no, definitely on the playmaker side of things. He's definitely going to be able to, if there's any pressure, if there's no out, he's definitely able to fly the zone and and kind of skate that puck out as opposed to a guy that needs to make that pass. Like you said, I mean, you got a guy who can power quarterback your power play. That's that's huge. I mean, even if he turns out to be a Tory Krug, he's going to be making, when he's off his entry level, $6 million a year. Yeah. So, I mean, just off that alone... Even if he turns into just the power play guy and he's putting up almost 50 points a year, that's that's a good day at the office for two second-round picks. I agree. And this just – he has the more name recognition among hockey fans in North America, but just an overall great week. The Adam Fox trade, we signed Krasov and Shersherskin. Uh We're going to be drafting either Jack Hughes or kind of go second overall in a couple of weeks. Uh, add that to Buchnevich, uh, Zibanejad, Hedl, Anderson, Brendan Lemieux, those guys up front. This rebuild just got more sped up and a lot more talented. The Rangers haven't had a guy, the ability to draft a guy like Hughes or Kako in forever. Um, and we have plenty of cash space this summer to help out on defense. So big summer. I'm excited. If Carolina can do it, we can do it. Hey, fair enough. I'm not, not going to argue with that guy. Uh, who who do you have for shout-outs this week? Uh, shout-outs, really quick, as always, to First Lady. She, as we're recording, is on an all-day uh, shoot as a stylist, so she's still doing her thing there. Um, I also, I don't want to call it a shout-out, but I just want to give some recognition. Uh, there was a guy that worked for TSN, and more recently he was a senior writer for The Athletic, covering the Vancouver Canucks and the NHL for few years now, I think almost a decade he's been uh, the Canucks and TSN and, and more recently, like I said, at The Athletic. Uh, he passed away unexpectedly last week, Jason Botchford. Uh, so I just want to recognize uh, one of my favorites in the hockey community in terms of writing and telling a story of the sport. So unfortunate news. Uh, you know, feel bad for his family. He was 48 years old. Uh, so just kind of want to recognize... Uh, Jason Botchford in that aspect. Well, RIP, rest in peace. And I'm with you. It's always sad when it's unexpected and someone who contributes to the game. Like, you know, when you read someone's stuff every day and now it's not there, you're like, that guy was so much better than the new guy they have. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. one of the worst parts. Um, on my end, shout out to Big Red, actually cooking dinner as we speak. So very happy to eat once as we're done recording. Uh Shout out to my cannibal and my little Emma. I had a very rough day today. They both beat the crap out of me, but um, <laughs> I'm happy we're past that point. Almost, you know, we're, we're getting ready to tune it down. They're both in bed, thank God. Um, I actually had to tell you, Stratty's ready to get a 2, 5, and 10 with you. He he is upset. The past two weeks, you've dogged him. Um, he, he <laughs> How did I dog him two him. weeks? I only talked about UMass once. UMass once, and then you said that um, me and him had broken up, and you found a different uh, midweek wife, and he oh. said that um, <laughs> he was not very happy about that. He's like, you better tell Benny, you know, I'm, I'm not very happy. Like, oh, all right, 2, 5, and 10, I'll have to tell him. 
Oh, listen, I love Stratty, um, but we know how this goes between the three of us. If we Next time I'm in Boston or you guys are visiting in New York or we're on our road trip, if he wants to lace them up and then you know try and drop the gloves, we can handle business on the ice, but we'll get a beer afterwards. At least he would. Well, yeah, you'll have to get something with uh, vodka. I'll, so. I'll, yeah, tequila, tequila pineapple. He can have his beer. All right, tequila pineapple. I'm game for a tequila pineapple I, I, right now. Listen, so, I love you, Stratty. It's nothing personal. Fuck Bobo, though. Yeah, Bobo's still out. Still hasn't listened. You know, no call, no text, no love. Bobo's out. Um, Dude, I don't know about you. These playoffs are aging me. Like, I wake up. I'm tired. I go to bed. I'm tired. I'm loving hockey, though. Everybody, thank you for listening, as always. We plan on having a conference final episode up at the end of this week before they all start. And sometimes I just wonder after lack of sleep and all the drinking as to the playoffs entail, like, what's my age again? Yeah.